I am reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 through 26. I'm reading from the NIV. Then those also, start again, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the death comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The gospel this morning is from the 20th chapter of John, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So there is a lot to grasp in this gospel story, this John's telling of the tomb, the empty tomb. And in classic Johonian fashion, there is plenty of symbolism going on here. Right from the beginning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and it's still dark. Uh, she's come there still without being able to see what's going on. Quite frankly, everybody was still in the dark, not the least of which were these disciples. So she comes in the dark and sees that the, um, uh, the tomb is open. And she pokes her head in and sees that no body is there. And so she runs back and she tells the disciples, and this part cracks me up. She goes and she tells the disciples and Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is the guy writing the book, right? Peter and the other disciple, they, they take up, let's go. Let's go see what's going on. So they get out there and they're running. But of course, John, the guy writing the book, says, well, Peter and I were running together. But then I started going faster, <laughs> you know, and he's lifting up because they got those dresses on, right? So they got to do this. And pretty soon, so John, in the middle of the gospel of the resurrection, decides to point out, by the way, in the race, I beat Peter there. He was a lot slower than I was. Uh, you know, a typical, Jesus is rising from the dead, and these boys are all about the competition. <laughs> Who's going to beat? Come on, Peter! <laughs> I'm going to beat you. Last one there. It's a rotten egg. So uh, they get there. And John's so worn out from trying to beat Peter that he, he stops at the entryway and then Peter just goes right in. And they see that Jesus is gone. And the linens are, are all laying all over the place. And so what do they do? They turn around and run home. These guys are always running away. Peter runs away when Jesus is taken away. All the disciples, they run away when things are happening. Anytime something significant is happening, they're running away. Judas ran away and turned Jesus in and betrayed him. Peter ran away and then when people tried to drag him back, he denied it. Everyone else was just gone. And so they run away. And just like every gospel story, what's left are the women who are consistently there, who stay with Jesus right to the end. Uh, Jerry, I'm, wave, I'm giving you signals here. Turn that down a little bit. <laughs> stay with Jesus right up to the end. And so here is, here is poor Mary Magdalene, and she is just weeping. It's just too much to bear. She weeps because she can't even do her last honor of Jesus preparing his body 
for burial. You see, there was not enough time before the Sabbath when they put Jesus in the tomb to do proper, to do right by him. So she was coming back to do, say her last farewells. It was kind of the ancient Jewish version of the wake and the, the, the open casket viewing and the last prayers they have there. And she couldn't even do that. I, I imagine for this moment that Mary felt what people feel who, never, who lose someone but are never really sure what happened. Or they never recover the remains of that person. There's something that gnaws at them for a long time in that, re, in that, that you never really get over. And for that moment, Mary probably felt like that. He was gone. And she just breaks down. Doesn't try to figure it all out, but has just reached a wall that she cannot bear. And she looks inside the tomb, and there are two angels sitting there. And uh, one commentator I was reading said something about this, and he just kind of said it in passing. And he referenced the Ark of the Covenant here about this. And so you need to picture with me, and I kind of thought this was fascinating. She, wa- she looks in and she sees two angels. Now, do you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark when Harrison Ford was young? Do you remember that one? And the angels, the Ark of the Covenant was that big gold box. And sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant are these two angels, one on either side. Now that Ark, that box, sat in the Holy of Holies of the temple in Jerusalem, in the most holy place. And the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem is where God's presence came in connection to the world we live in, right? It was, in fact, Jerusalem, the Temple Mound is called the navel or the umbilical cord of the world uh, by believers in this time. In other words, it's where heaven and earth kind of meet. And that, that place where those two angels were is called the mercy seat. And back in the day, when the priest went into the temple, God was on that mercy seat. And so here you have, again, John's symbolism. You have the empty tomb, but these two angels kind of on either side of the mercy seat. But of course, Jesus isn't there. Where is Jesus? He's gardening, apparently. He's outside the tomb, and he's out in the garden, and... Mary sees him, thinks he's the gardener, uh, which, you know, I would think the splendor of Jesus in the resurrected state. Our gardeners don't look that good when they're out here working, but she was in grief. You know, what do you expect? So she's in grief and she sees Jesus, but doesn't recognize him and pleads, where have you taken the body? And then he says, don't you, you know, he's, I kind of picture Jesus going, don't you recognize me? Mary, 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 just says her name. And she's, she gets it. She kind of gets it because she says Rabboni, which is, uh, it means teacher. And, the, you know, that was Jesus' earthly name. He is now the risen Christ. That's a whole other thing. So she kind of gets it. Teacher. 
what are you doing here? Oh, you're risen. And then, and it's, it's this thing about, you know, she says teacher to him, and he says, now wait a minute, don't, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. And, and she calls him this, this name and prompts Jesus to give her this admonition. Do not hold on to me. This one phrase, i got to say, has prompted a lot of scholars to write a bunch of essays and books. And, you know, theologians just love to grab onto something and go with it for a long time and publish a few books and get tenure and all those things. And uh, about why Jesus can't be touched at this point. But I want to point out just two things about this. There's two words in here that are significant. One is this word hold, right? And if we were to all break out our Greek texts, go ahead, if you got yours, just go ahead and pull that out. You would see that the verb here in Greek is hapto, and it is in the present imperative tense of the, of the verb. And, it, and so because it's present imperative, it has this kind of present ongoing action. So it should it would be a better translation, and I don't know why they don't do this for us, but it would be a better translation to say, do not keep holding on to me. Right? And English doesn't have these present imperative texts. Instead, we add more words. It's kind of our thing. And, but it, so it really should read, do not keep holding on to me. She says, teacher, he says, now wait a minute, don't keep holding on to this, this old way of thinking, this old paradigm of what I am, of who I am, because I am not that same thing you experienced when I was in flesh and blood. I was the word become flesh. Now I'm the flesh become word. Amen. Amen. It's Easter. Amen. <laughs> you can do better. The word, the, the word, the flesh become word all of a sudden. And there's another word here. Uh, the anabano. Anabano is this word for ascend. Jesus says, I must ascend. I must anabano. Uh, I must go. And, and here again, I believe the imagery is one of she sees her old teacher. He says, wait a minute, don't hang on to that picture because I am going to ascend. I am going to become something more than what you experience. Something grander, something big, something universal, something huge, something you can't even imagine. And had those two guys been here, instead of running back and forth, they'd be getting this story too. But no, here's Mary grabbing onto this, getting a hold of all of this. So Mary, do not keep hanging on to Jesus the Rabboni. He must become more. He must ascend. He must transform. He must metamorphize into the Christ you and I know today. And she is instructed to go tell this news to the others. All those guys who ran away. Now I, got, I only got you, Mary. Go tell them everything I just told you. And so she does. The passion story that we've been focused on for this last week Probably many of you saw uh, some movies about that and the, the miniseries that's going on. This passion story, in fact, the whole gospel. Jesus being stalked by the authorities. Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Jesus denied by Peter. Jesus flogged and bloodied and executed by the powers that be in Rome. All of this was about hopelessness. All of this 
was about doom. It was about ending. It was about the powers winning over good. It was about evil winning over good. Hopelessness. And at the heart of the resurrection story, at the heart of it all, is hope. Amen? When all was lost, when the world seemed its bleakest, when all of our hope hung dead on a cross, God turned things around. The world said yes. God, or I'm sorry, the world said no. <laughs> God said yes. Amen? And, you know, we live in a pretty bleak time, don't we? I mean, we feel like that. It feels pretty bleak a lot of times. If you ever open up the newspaper, it's ugliness. It's mayhem. People with guns running amok, doing all kinds of crazy things. There is war. There is oppression. There is exploitation. And there doesn't seem to be any way out of it. Yet, i got to tell you, there's good news out there. There is good news out there. There is hope all around us. Do you know that, statistically speaking, we are in the most peaceful time in human history right now. There are fewer wars and fewer crimes that end in people's lives ending. There's less murder and mayhem and, and war going on in the world now than at any other time in history. I know we've gotten really good at reporting it is, is part of the problem. But in the, in the course of human evolution and events and history, now is relatively peaceful compared to all of those times. You know, and, but we look around and we see things like, like Israel and Palestine. Israel and Palestine, my gosh. Are we ever going to figure this out as a people? It's so frustrating, isn't it? And disheartening. And it seems hopeless. It seems hopeless. Because Jews and Islamic Arabs are not going to get along. But you know what? That's a bunch of bull. Since 1970, in a little community called Nev Shalom in Hebrew or Wachat al-Salam in Arabic, which means, translated, Oasis of Peace. There has been this community that was started by a, a priest, by the way, a Catholic, a Catholic Christian priest. There has been this community where Israeli and Arab, where Jew and Muslim have been living side by side, in community, there's Christians there too, in peace, democratically, since, since the 70s. How many of you, that's the first time you've ever heard that? How come we don't know that? Because it represents such hope. We ought to be lifting that up. We ought to make the United Nations go and spend like a year there, right? Amen? I mean, we ought, to, we ought to look at this and go, wow, there's some hope happening there. Do you know that this year, uh, well, th uh, this year they've documented, a baby two and a half years ago was born with HIV, 
HIV, but this year was declared cured after an aggressive treatment right after birth. Cured of AIDS. We were told that would never happen. Oh, people, there's some hope out there. There's some hope out there. Last year, we had a women's conference here that Karen Carter put together, and this woman came talking about human trafficking, talking about prostitutes in Costa Rica. And what an awful... It's, it's one of those things where you kind of don't even want to know. You kind of don't even want to know that that exists, that kind of despair, that kind of exploitation, that kind of hopelessness. You kind of don't want to know about it. But she came and she opened up our eyes and she showed us three women, mostly, again, what am I saying here? Whew. So three women who were taking these prostitutes out of the business and giving them something else to do, something life-affirming, something life-transforming, something that valued their humanity, and they were turning things around. There is hope found all around us, but we rarely get to hear about it. I keep reading about how our environmental issues are hopeless, but i got to tell you, I have faith in the innovative gift people have for problem-solving once properly motivated. You know, Norman Borlaug introduced, back in the day, dwarf wheat that was a high-yield and disease-resistant wheat into India in the 60s and 70s at a time when starvation was devastating their population. When Norman Borlaug was given his Nobel Peace Prize, it was said that he saved millions and millions of lives. It was a miracle. It was nothing short of a miracle. And there's, there's some critique about some of it, but there's no doubt, there's no denying that Norman Borlaug's innovation saved millions of lives. Amazing hope. Yesterday, a 63-year-old man fell off the platform onto the subway tracks at the station in Philadelphia, and a young man jumped on the tracks to help him get out before the next train come, came and killed this person. Now, we've all read the stories about people who just sat back and watched all that happen. Yesterday, that didn't happen in Philadelphia. Someone stepped in and did something. There is hope. There is hope all around us even in this day and age. And it is a hope more than anything that is at the heart of Christianity. Not just hope that there is a heaven. You know, the, it is indeed comforting to know that the resurrection points to a hope of something more out there beyond this world. But there is this hope is important in the here and the now, in how we live our life today. This hope goes beyond just the bad news that we hear in this day. I don't know about you, but there are those among us who has lost someone. And we feel that sense of hopelessness. And yet, day by day, hour by hour, when God instills in our heart a sense that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, we will make it through this. And the pain of the loss will fade, and what will be left is the joy of relationship and experience. Amen? There are those among us who have been hurt, who have been 
abused, who have been victimized. And God help us, sometimes it's been the church that has done that. Hasn't it? Sometimes it's been religiously justified, our abuse. And it feels hopeless. And yet, redemption means that we regain control of our lives, that we cease to be a victim, and we come to terms with our own faith, and we say, look, you can't take that away from me. God is love. God is love. And whenever you say God and abuse me, that has nothing to do with God. Ooh, can you see how redemptive that is to take it back and no longer let someone use that love of God as a reason to abuse you or put you down or take you away from the community and from God. Many of us have just been hurt and are weeping outside the tomb because we've hit a wall of despair and we don't know what to do next. Today, what the resurrection is about is hope. That there is nothing, nothing that the world can throw at you that with God's help and God's people's help, we can't get through together. Amen. Thank you, Larry. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, on this resurrection day, we ask you to resurrect hope in our hearts and hope in this whole world you created and said was good. We commit ourselves to hope on this day. And we ask all this in the name of Christ, who lives. Amen.